Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So, AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So, welcome and enjoy. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to AccidentalMuslims.com. And uh, this evening, thrilled to have. Brother Imran Chunara. I've been trying to get hold of you for quite some time. You yeah. should know that. And finally, Shukran for, for welcome to the AccidentalMuslims.com yeah. family. Well, alhamdulillah, excellent. Good to be here, Khalil. And always, I mean, I've been watching what you guys have been up to and really impressed with what you guys are doing around the country. And I must take my hat off to what you guys are doing. I think it's incredible. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. So, I've been, I've been watching you. I've been following you quite, quite avidly. And very interested in the Imran before being so positive and inspirational. <laughs> I was in Iran school. Let's talk about that. Well, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, I, I uh, probably like most people are watching now, I, um, I think I'm pretty normal, you know, when I think about it. But, uh, and it sounds weird, I'm just going to say it how it, how yeah. it is. It's, uh, I always knew there was something, I mean, there had to be a better way to live. You know, I grew up in a household where my parents got divorced at about when I was five years old. So, uh, and interestingly, I mean, I, you can imagine there's, as in, in communities, there's so many families like that. So, there's whole stories behind that whole situation and all that kind of stuff. But somehow, I don't know, you know, it was blessed me with kind of a weird kind of mind that somehow I always figured, well, things will always work out the best way. It will always work out the way it should. I don't know if it is a weird kink in my mindset or whatever the case is but to be honest that's how I always felt uh were things tough growing up yeah you know it was incredibly tough growing up I remember when you know my parents got divorced and uh and I stayed and upstate myself and my sister ended up living with my dad and uh, then I hadn't seen my mom since I was five years old around that time five six years old till I was 17 again you know and uh and uh literally had wouldn't have known her if you had found somebody in the street and said, this is your mom, I would have been like, okay, well, if you say so, type thing. And uh, and I remember times when, you know, as a young boy and my dad would say he had the epileptic fits and he used to sit in his his couch and he would, we were like five and seven, myself and my older sister, and he would just like collapse, literally like going into a fit. So this is kind of what was going on. And it never occurred to me that this was out of the ordinary or you know, uh, I mean, there were days when, you know, we were looking for food in, in different places. And, uh, you know, uh, as a teenager, I ran away from home and stayed outside one night in the middle of winter. I can't understand why I chose winter in Joburg. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I did. So this is kind of just, it's, I suppose it's normal growing up stuff, you know. And, um, uh, but I always knew that there must be more to life. There had to be, uh, in my mind, you know. And... Um, and that's how were you in school? How was the results? You know, to be honest, I mean, I was never... Like, like average or below? <laughs> slightly below? I was never, a, like, the bright one in the class. You know? I wasn't the weakest one either. But to be honest, I just... And maybe this way, the power of association, I've often talked about it. Maybe that's where it came into play. I never understood it. But I hung around with this guy who was really bright. And he was like, he came out first every single year. He was the academic genius, you know, in throughout primary school and pretty much high school as well. And I just, I somehow he befriended me, actually. 
in grade one, I used to run around wetting my pants, actually. I used to literally, like, wet my pants almost every single day. It was insecurity, maybe what was going on, you know, in family, whatever. The point of the matter is, this oak befriended me. And he would, like, kind of take me under his wing. And he would just kind of share his lunch with me and weird stuff. And uh, I became his friend. And he was the brightest guy in the class. And I suppose if you hang around with somebody like that, he kind of knows when it's time to study. And he knows what we should study. So... So I'd have to. <laughs> yeah, so they say you're the average of the five people. There yeah, we go. So I hung around with him and he was, and to this day, we're still friends. And uh, and uh, that's, so then I kind of passed like that, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so that's cool. And then uh, did, you, did you study at the university? Yeah, you know, when I, uh, so I finished primary school, I mean, I went to normal public schools and stuff like that. So I finished primary school in Indonesia, went on to high school and stuff like that. That's when, you know, in high school, I nearly quit school in high school. And, uh, you know, my dad was kind of one of those guys where unique way of, uh, he's a very strong leader kind of person. And maybe that's a lot of the influence comes from him as well. A man of strong character, high integrity, whatever the case is. But also very, uh, a hard taskmaster, so to speak. So I said at age 16, I ran away from home because my father had this thing about, you know, it's either my rules, it, you know, my house, it's my rules. And I didn't like his rules. So at age 16, I decided, well, I'm going to run away from home, middle of high school. And middle of winter, one Friday night, I decided to walk from Lanesia to Johannesburg, which is like 35 kilometers. You know why? Middle of winter. Slept under a bridge that night. Uh, rats running everywhere. Big learning learning curve. Next morning, I went around to my dad's office. Knew, I knew where he, where he was going to be. Uh, I thought he'd see me and he'd feel sorry for me. Actually, the night before, I called from a telephone booth back then. I called home after I ran away. And my mom and granny was there. And they were obviously in tears, you know. It's my dad remarried and all that. Anyway, so now they were in tears because they said, like, Imran, come home. Where are you? You know, this kind of thing. And I obviously did this to prove a point to my dad. So I said, uh, well, where's dad? And they said, well, when you found out you left home, you went to sleep. I said, what, sleep. I said, what do you mean you went to sleep? I said, well, he said, well, it's your life. If you don't belong to him anyway, you belong to your creator anyway. So you left, you left. It's your choice. I thought, man, this is incredible. I was a man who was slave. It's like, somewhere, I'm trying to prove a point to him and he goes to sleep. And so the next morning, I walk around his office and he sees me from his, and he comes outside and he says to me, look, you know, so uh, if you want to come home, go see me in my office, but the rules don't change. He said, if you don't want to come home, um, it's okay. You're already on the outside. You might as well stay. And I thought about the night before that I slept under the bridge with rats running around and with some of the street kids. I mean, a different, different uh, feeling for street kids. And, uh, and yeah, and I thought, I'm going home. It's like, it's unbelievable. Oh, okay. And then I finished matric and um, stumbled into dental technology. I became, I graduated as a dental technician at WITS. And how that happened is the weirdest thing ever. I mean, I had no clue what a dental technician did. I figured dental. And this best friend of mine was so bright, was going to become a medical doctor. And he, he is a medical doctor today. And I thought, oh, I'm not that studious. And I'm not that committed to stay seven years or longer. And I found that a dental technician made good money. It seemed like the guys I knew seemed like they did well financially. And as a young guy, that was important. A uh, nice car, nice house kind of thing. And so I said, I'll go become a dental technician. I had no idea what, what they did. I never s- didn't know that they, what they actually did on a daily basis. I thought dental, yeah, teeth. Technician, like maybe they fix dental chairs or something. I, <laughs> I, could, I thought I could learn how to do that. I mean, how difficult can it be to drive a nice car, live a nice house? So I applied at WITS and, 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 and they called me in for the interview. You know, they asked you these things about, you know, do you, uh, have you ever, you know, just figure out whether you do a spot. And so they, they said, have you ever been a dental laboratory before? And it's not a good time to say no. 
So I said, yeah, yeah. of course. And they were like, you happy? With it? And they accept me for the course. And six months later, they were teaching me how to make dentures. And I thought, my life is over. <laughs> for the rest of my life, I'm going to make false teeth. But I graduated top of my... And funny enough, here's yeah. the oddest thing. I graduated top of my class at the time. And it taught me a lesson, I suppose, that I didn't realize I was learning, was that in the first six months, I found out how bad I was at that course. Like, I was, I was, I was struggling the first six months of the four-year course. And I started getting scared. I thought, wait a second, like I, this is my, my future. You know, at that time, you think it's my life. And so uh, I decided to just work harder than everybody else. And I literally did, I mean, I studied and worked in the profession while I was studying. And after four years, graduated top of my class. Again, not because I'm bright. And I didn't do it with any intention, frankly. I suppose I just got scared when I was struggling in the first six months. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to fail. And then what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to be a doctor or somebody else. So this just takes too long. And I just decided to learn. And I think that time I figured out, or maybe I didn't figure out, I figured later on, that that time what was happening, the lesson I was learning, which I try to share with a lot of young people now, is that university or tertiary education, may, you may not do that. Like, I, don't, I graduated, worked for a couple of months in the profession, and never did it again. So I'm probably a lousy dental technician today because I haven't practiced for over 20 years. I literally practiced, I grabbed top of my class, had a good job, worked for two months or so afterwards, and quit. But it's not that, it's not that it was a loss, because that process teaches you how to learn. And if you learn how to learn, you can learn anything. I want to go back to the night you were under the bridge. Yeah. And with the rats. And probably cold as well. Yeah, freezing. It's unbelievable. Besides the lesson that your father taught you when you came home, what were you feeling at that time under the bridge? Like, what, what you know, do, you, do you remember? Can yeah, you, you know, I often I can picture the bridge. I'm exactly where it is. When I go to Joburg, when I drive yeah, past yeah. it, uh, sometimes when the kids are with me, when we go to Joburg uh, to visit family and I show them the bridge and I'm like, that bridge and me, we're friends. So it's incredible because that night I slept with these street kids under this bridge. I mean, they slept for most of the night. Because their bodies are used to it. I'm not saying it's good for them. I'm just saying they've been doing it for so long, which is another scary thing. I woke up every five minutes because just my body wasn't used to it. So it's the freezing cold, the cars driving past, the rats running over you. So um, you're just not used to it. So and and you know and and uh, I'm grateful for that though because I could have gone anywhere as a teenager, to be honest. I I could have gone in any direction. Somehow, my creator protected me in an environment where I had some good friends. Like, funny enough, here's the thing. Throughout my high school career, I never entered a nightclub. Whereas some of the people I knew at school did that regularly. No, I'm not judging. I'm just saying it is what it is, right? I never smoked anything. I could have, I suppose, gone down that road. I just didn't. I don't know why. It just never made sense to me, frankly. Logically, it was it's illogical to me. Um, to alter your state of mind or to, or to do weird stuff. Was I naughty? Yeah, I was naughty as a kid, as a teenager. I mean, I was driving since I was like 14 years old. So I was naughty, you can imagine, right? I mean, got caught for driving without license and all that kind of stuff. Now it's a different world. Back then, just warn you and kick you out again, you know, or throw you in the cell to scare yeah. you, whatever. But that night laying under that bridge, I think it helped me when I think back on it. At that time, I was just angry. I was an angry teenager. And I'll be honest with you, I was angry because I thought, I used to, you see, 
as much as I speak nowadays, I'm actually a very private person. I actually, I, I much prefer my own company, frankly. It's really weird. Okay. I'm a very much introverted so person. <laughs> yes. I'm such a person that I can be by myself and I'm happy. Like I travel by myself often and I'm okay with it. But I, I enjoy people also. It's this weirdest kind of d- d- dynamic. I feel like so I used to walk to school every day and I would hope that none of my friends walk with me. I'd like to walk by myself because I used to talk to myself loud. I mean, if I get analyzed one day psychologically, I'm sure they'll <laughs> admit me. But the point is, I used to talk to myself about my future. Somehow I believed that when I become an adult, whatever that meant, my life would stop. I should actually tell myself this. I should say to myself, when I'm at this age or that age, when I finish school, when I graduate, my life will start. So almost like that was just preparation for life to start almost. It's a weird kind of thing. When I think back on those times, I was just angry, but I was also very responsible. My father had this kind of thing where he tried to give me a lot of responsibility. Uh, and maybe the situation at home because of a young age and that happening gives you that kind of, can either push you one way where you can become... Uh, where, you can, where you can lose yourself or it can push you another way where you can uh, where you stand up and become stronger now having said that I'm sure it has its weaknesses I think I learned to compartmentalize things back then as a teenager meaning I put things in its space I can put something in its box and leave it there and I can deal with it when it needs to be dealt with and then I can I can leave you now and need to go somewhere and be in that space completely and not think about what happened yet I can literally just move myself and, then, and leave this way it is uh, and uh, so that night under the bridge, I, uh, I can I say I realized the value of family? Maybe, maybe not. Because I didn't ponder over it afterwards. I came home, carried on living. A year or two later, I wanted to quit school. I went to my dad, I said, I'm going to leave school. Because I wanted to go make money. And I was like, this is kind of, I was, I was standing in line, grade 11. I'm like, I'm going to quit school. And I wasn't doing badly. I was doing pretty decently at school. So I had some good friends that I hung around with. And my dad just looked at me one day and said, sure, no problems. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. The man like gets it. And so, and so I stayed home that day. And he came home that evening and he said, so did you go to school today? And I said, no, I told you I'm not going. And he said, it's okay. He said, okay, go wait upstairs for me. What that really meant was he had a stick belt. <laughs> and he just meant, we're going to fix this tonight. <laughs> and that's what it is. Yeah. And it's funny, throughout my whole high school, I never came home after midnight. Because like it was my curfew. At university, it was my curfew. Midnight. I, my dad was weird. I, he allowed me to drive. Yeah. But I had to be home at midnight. And there was a couple of times when I was past midnight. And then you find out that, no, you should rather be here at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> so, will you say your dad was a mentor? Yeah. To you? You know, he was incredible, man. Uh, and uh, And the one person I believe is an absolute rock in my life was my dad. And I say this often to people, including my kids as well, that I could have messed up in so many ways, even though I knew that when, I, when he finds out, he's going to be really upset and he's probably going to beat the heck out of me. Because frankly, that's what he did. He did beat the heck out of me uh, a lot. Now, if any psychologist who watches it or anything, man, that's what's wrong with this. I hope he's at, you know. But anyway, the point of the matter is, that's what he did. And I knew it was going to happen if I did something wrong. But I also knew, weird dilemma, I knew that if he found out what, what I did, if I got into trouble or made a mistake or whatever, I knew I needed to go to him. So even though he was going to be angry and probably beat the heck out of me, I still needed to go to him. Why? Because 
He was the one person I knew would have my back. Not in a spoiled way, like, oh, no, it's never mind my son. It's okay. I'll fix it for you. No, no, no. He would never do that. He's all, he was the parent that went to the teachers and told him, my son does something wrong. Hit him and then send him home and then phone me and tell me why you hit him and I hit him again. <laughs> <laughs> so he was not someone that was like, oh, I have my back. Like, he'll excuse what I did. No, no, no. But he'll know how to responsibly teach me what to do next. So that later on, I don't know if you were design or what, but today in my life, I feel the same way that I just feel like there's a process to things. Something goes wrong. It's okay. Let's stop. Look at it properly. What's the next thing we do? And that, I believe, okay. came from him. So he was a strong mentor. After I graduated and moved to Cape Town and whatever the case is, I would travel to Joburg almost every second or third week. And then, you know, you appreciate It's funny. I read this quote the other day that the older I get, the smarter my father becomes. Uh, and I just realized how true that is. The older I got, the smarter my father was. When I was younger, he looked very dumb to me. <laughs> when I was younger, he looked like, man, he doesn't get it. He just doesn't understand. So with, besides your dad, do you have any other mentors in your life? You know, it doesn't have to be obviously. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I do. Uh, I know last week you spent some time with Dr. Yeah, Maxwell yeah. as well. Yeah. I do have a few mentors for different areas of life, and some were just kind of inherited mentors, so to speak, like you say, not formalized. And I say that because, and again, I don't know if my dad did this by design or what happened, but he did this kind of weird thing where he wasn't wealthy, he didn't have a lot of money. But every year almost, at the end of every year, all my friends would come to Cape Town for holiday. As like it was a thing for these Joba guys to come to Cape Town. Even in matric, you know, it was like a big deal. December, the holiday time. And beginning of the year, they'd say, we're going to Cape Town. And I'd say, I'd ask my dad. And he'd be like, yeah, sure, no worries. And the whole year, we'd like, we're going to Cape Town. And at the end of the year, they'd all get ready to go. And my dad would say, no, you're not going. And I'd be like, what do you mean I'm, going? I'm not going? The whole year, it's like, you're not going. I'm like, where am I? What am I going to do the whole holidays? And he would send me to like Sudan or something. Like he had friends in different parts around the world, right? <laughs> So he would call a friend somewhere and he would put me on a plane and send me to go live with them for like a few weeks. So I'd go to Sudan or Egypt or, I mean, these crazy places. And I'd go, you know, then I'd go to Saudi and then I'd go to, and once I was, you know, and all this kind of, and I just think, why? And I hated it. I mean, I liked it when I was there, but I hated that I was missing Cape Town or whatever. So in my schooling, I never saw Cape Town. Well, all my friends were every so year. That's why you yeah, every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I never saw Cape Town. Even December of matric. Why I say that is because then he would send me to some of his mentors. I didn't know that oh. at the time. And I, they, they took me under their wing. And they would advise me. And I would live with their families and what, what, what. And I'd learn. I didn't know I was learning. And to this day, funny enough, for example, I can pinpoint the guy right now who's in his late 80s, maybe. Maybe, maybe close to 90s. Say, say, say 80s. Who mentored my dad. And when my dad passed on, he just took me under his wing and just continued mentoring me. And that's like, that's the weirdest thing ever. And I just respect him so much. Oh, so, meet your dad, eh? you know, just, he had this kind of weird kind of way. So he did that every year. And then, for example, in Matric, which is like a big deal. I said, Dad, now Matric, you can't deny me Cape Town, man. He said, No, no, no problems. End of the year came, they all went in. He was like, No, you're not going. I said, well, what, am I, what am I doing? By now, I kind of figured. He said, no, this year what you're doing is I've got a friend coming from Saudi and he needs to be driven around Joburg for about four weeks and you're going to drive him around. And he, I said, am I getting paid for it? Like, I mean, and he said, no. <laughs> and I thought, this is insane. My holiday of matric, I'm spending driving this guy around. I don't care. He's like an older guy, whatever. 
But I had to do it, and I did it. And after one, of two, one or two, three, four days, this guy tells my dad, listen, man, you know what? I'm here alone. I'd like Imran to stay with me till like 10 o'clock at night. And then come early in the morning, have breakfast with me until dinner time. Because, you know, I don't have any... Like, I, I say, so must stay at the hotel. <laughs> yeah. I thought, my holiday. Come on, man. My dad said, Imran, you got to do that. So I did that. Every day. You know what? That man taught me some lessons in the car driving around. Just by the way, for example, certain du'as he taught me, certain things he taught me that to this day I use. I was 18. I'm 45. And I still use it. Then at the end of that six weeks, this guy tells me, he's about to leave now to go back. He says, look, uh, I'm grateful for what you've done, whatever the case is. He says, I want you to pick one friend and come with me. Okay? So I took my cousin with me. And so he took us with to Saudi, and he allowed us to enter the Kaaba. So that was like, I mean, what better reward yeah, can you get? You know what exactly, I'm saying? Yeah. And you know, back then, this mentality was, you know, when you go inside the if you ever go inside the Kaaba, you mustn't look up because you go blind. Because it's, you know, last throw. I mean, as a kid, we learn all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or somebody said, I don't know how it started. Yeah, anyway. I'm one of those weird people. I'm like, man, if I want to go blind, now's a good time to go blind. I mean, I'll just say, right. It's like, hey, it's my, that's what I feel. So I just thought, so I went and I looked everywhere. Right? I'm like, I was not gonna, I mean. So you're in the Kaaba? I was inside the Kaaba twice, alhamdulillah. And, and uh, but you know, again, like I said, so my dad kind of, so he put me in touch with, and to this day, that man, for example, still knows our family, still is in touch with us. It's just amazing. Amazing. Uh, and then, you know, even my dad, in a weird kind of way, I mean, I grew up, you can imagine, in Linasia, a conservative society, back in the days of apartheid, obviously. So you can imagine this Muslim Indian boy growing up in Linasia, right? In my early 20s, literally after I graduate, I moved to Cape Town, I started in business by chance, not, not, by, not because of my genius, but by chance, frankly. And I get taken under the wing of an American Christian woman who's she's 80 this year I'm 45 right so that's 35 years my senior I was in my 20s she was in the mid 50s at that time took me under her wing and decided to introduce me to the world of leadership okay. now what's the chances except that it's creator's design that that could happen that this Muslim boy from Lanasia conservative society back in the days of apartheid gets to be mentored by this Christian businesswoman from the US who I was there a couple of weeks ago and I went to visit her again and just she introduced me to the world of and funny enough I was one of those weird people that after university I said you know I never read another book in my life and it sounds very much sounds it's the dumbest thing ever to say but it sounds incredible so it's like I burn my books whatever so I literally stopped reading when I finished Adverts. And she's mentored me, and by chance. Uh, and when I spoke to my dad about her, and I said to him, you know, this is kind of what, they, what she's advising me to do, whatever the case is. And he was like, you know, I think she's, I think she's right. Now, for a dad to tell his son, to support his son in, 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 in being mentored by some woman who comes into his life in his early 20s, that must be, I mean, that takes a lot of foresight on my dad's part to be open to that. And yet he was. And she said to me back then, she said, listen, if you never read, you'll never lead. And she said, you'll never succeed at anything if you don't read. Because how is it possible that at age 20 you decided you know everything 
to live the rest of your life. Like you've learned everything. You must never read another book in your life. And I thought, ah, oh, that makes sense. And she got me reading again. Fascinating. Is it, are there any are there any questions yeah, on Instagram? I mean, to ask the public. So, so guys, um, I hope you're enjoying this interview because I'm definitely enjoying it. If you have any questions for Imran, please type away. Okay. So fascinating. I mean, I'm talking about, about reading. Talking about reading. Yeah. I said, go to my. Yeah, so go for it. Go for it. So I never read in school. In fact, I I was quite um, yeah I hated books. So I used to. So I never read until 30, age 30. Wow. And only about a couple of years ago, I started reading. Like wow. once, or yeah. about two books a, a month. Yeah. yeah. And the only, the, the only regret I have in my life is not reading. And, and you're right. And, I'm, and, you know, and, and I still encourage people to this day, that whatever age you are, start. Start reading. I mean, and, and I really have this view that as long as you've got breath in your body, as long as you're breathing, you're not done in this world. Because we don't decide when we're done. Our Creator decides the day you're done. Which means if you're alive, you're not done. So if you're not done, how can you decide you must retire? Now, I don't get me wrong. Retirement means different different people. I just mean, I see some people when they retire or they say they retire, they mean I switch off from what I was doing normally. Which means I don't have to read anymore. I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to stimulate my mind anymore. Well, actually, some people still have, are still far from retirement and they stop stimulating their mind already, which scares me. My, fig, my thing is that if you're alive, you should, you're not done, which means if you're not done, it means you still have to learn some stuff because you've got things to do, which means if you've got stuff to do, surely you can't know everything, which means you still have to learn. Now, how are you going to learn if you're not reading? Mm-hmm. So it just kind of connects. But you know, my dad, funny enough, again, you know, I tell you, somehow I was blessed with his father did all this kind of crazy stuff. So he, had, he kept on, I thought it was a joke. He kept on joking with us saying, you know, when I die, I won't leave you any money, but I'll leave you all my books because he had a lot of books that he loved reading. He used to read every single day. He used to highlight in the Quran, he used to do crazy stuff. And he just read a lot. And so he, um, he said, uh, when I die, I'll leave you all my books. He told me, my two brothers and my sister, he said, I'll leave you guys my books, but I'll leave you no money. And then when he died, I thought, nah, he must be kidding. I mean, you know, like there must be money somewhere. Like, you must have left something. I mean, come on, you know. And we looked, and there wasn't. He was true to his word. The man was a man of his word. He left. <laughs> but he left all his books. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, when I think of it, it's probably a good thing. Because, uh, you know, he passed away now, what's it, eight years already. And to this day, my, my sister, my brothers, and I, and my mom, have never fought about money. Because there's nothing to fight about. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so he instilled us in us in his three example, his love for reading, and then of course the you mentioned that. genius. Do you think that we're all born with some genius? Hundred percent. This whole and I and I know we can debate this left, right, and center, and different people. I, I truly, truly, truly believe this whole thing about IQ and this and that and all kind of stuff and what determines genius anyway is all what we come up with anyway from our own perspective as human beings. But come on, then you're telling me that, 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 you see, it's a whole story. I think we've all read this quote somewhere on social media where he talks about if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, mm. you always think you know, it, will, it will always consider itself dumb. A monkey can climb a tree really fast, but a fish can't. But that doesn't mean the fish is, 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 not, uh, is not genius because it can't, can't climb the tree as well as the monkey can. So if you and I are in the same class, you're being judged on the same thing. 
and you're better than me at that. Just because we're two humans does not mean we must be able to do exactly the same thing to the exact same degree. We're different. Every single person. Now, we always see on social media again, we all say, every person's unique. You're all different. Everybody, even your fingerprints, there's no two people alike in the whole world. You are special. You are unique. Oh, is it? We say that, and then we don't practice it. Meaning, we'll judge you and I on the same test, on the same, I must do the same thing you do, and you perform better than I do, so you're better than me. So somehow you graded in some way higher than me. Now, I start believing I'm done, because I'm the fish that can't climb the tree. But wait a second, let's judge us in the water. Then you as a monkey can't do what I can do in water. But wait a second, so how come we're not doing How come we're not saying that each person... You see, I don't believe God creates any junk. So there has to be a purpose for every human being. And by that purpose, person finding their purpose, they express their genius in that. Now the sad part though is most of us believe we're not genius. We don't look for a purpose. We just somehow accept something given to us and then we pursue that. And we live through lives as one of my mentors says, you know, uh, most men live, and we talk about men and women, most men generally live lives of quiet desperation. So most people walk around quietly desperate, but because society doesn't talk about it, so we don't mean to mention it, so we're all doing all right. So how do we change it? How do we, how do we inspire people to reach their highest potential? That's uh, probably a lifelong thing we can discuss and figure out, and many philosophers, I'm sure, talk about it anyway. I just feel this, that out of seven, almost 7 billion people on the planet, so you were born at some point and you're going to die at some point. How long that's going to last, I have no idea. That's the 7 billion that's on the planet at the moment. What about the ones that went before? And what about the ones still to come? That billions of people you put all together. Why were you here? Why? What benefit are you here? Surely there must be a reason in the whole big scheme of things, in the history of mankind. Okay, so if you're here, but you're here amongst animals and you're here amongst the environment. So surely it must involve something that involves more than yourself. If you are on this planet out of the billions of people that existed, exist and will exist, and if you're here to feed yourself, to sleep, and then die one day, then you are just a liability to the planet. Then you are purposeless. You are pointless that you are rocked up here. But surely that's not possible. So if you're rocked up here, there's a reason. You may find, take your whole life to discover that reason. But I believe it's every human being's job, if you want to call it that, to discover their purpose. Now, it's cliche. Find your purpose. Love your purpose. I understand that. It took me, I, I battled with it. Do I still battle with it? Yeah, I still have to evaluate it about, I'm now 45, but 15 years ago, I sat down, I can pinpoint where exactly I sat down thinking, okay, why am I here? What's this for? Surely it can't be so I go to work every day, make some money, eat, feed people around me, sleep. One day I die. That's it. And I figured, okay, but if I'm here, then I'm and amongst other people. Otherwise, my creator could let me be born in a desert somewhere, by myself. I'll find my own food, eat my own food, live, die one day. But he, in his wisdom, put me amongst other people. And then he makes everybody different, which is really complicated. Then he puts men and women there, which is really weird. And then he, you know, he makes us different colors. So then, And then he puts plants there, and he puts animals there. Surely there must be some sort of connection here, and my purpose must involve adding value. So if my purpose, so I say to people all the time, you want to discover your purpose? Think about this for a second. You are here for a reason, accept it. Number two, look around you. 
and figure out what makes you, what fires you up every single day. If you're waking up every single day and you're not excited, you're probably going down the road that you shouldn't, that you're not designed for. What fires you up every single day to be alive? Now, you might be buying into a story today that you're a good accountant and that's what you should do. Yeah, but maybe you just like, I was a good dental technician. I graduated top of my class. But it didn't fire me up every single day. I would have died inside sitting in a laboratory. Does it mean for someone else it's not right? No, it just means for me it wasn't. What does Imran, to show us that question in the beginning, what does Imran Shunara do on a daily? What do you do every day? What do you, well, here's the job? thing. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. It's hard to say because I do lots of things. I, and, and I often, and I, and, I, and, I'm, and I stick with my answer and I stick with it no matter who asks me. Mm-hmm. I live life. What do I mean by that? Khalil, who said Monday to Friday is work and Saturday, Sunday is holiday? Who designed that concept? I'm alive on Saturday, but I'm alive also on Wednesday. If I open my eyes in the morning, it means I've got this time now available to me. We know in our, in our religion as well, we know that you don't pray some days and, pray, and not pray other days because it's weekend. Uh, no. So the concept of I work during the weekend, I'm on holiday on the weekend. I, I don't subscribe to that concept. So it may be a Wednesday when I'm having a coffee midday somewhere. It may be 7 o'clock in the evening when I'm busy doing some work. But what you might consider work, I just consider it part of life. If I've got to sit today and I prepare a report and it's now 8 o'clock at night and I must prepare this report, I don't term this work. I term it, this is what I need to do next in my life. Now, you have to be very careful that you allocate time for kids, time for spouse, time for family, time for leisure, time for... But I don't separate it. It's part of life. It's intertwined. If I need to spend time with my kids today, okay, I'll spend time with my kids. Plan it into my diary. So to answer your question, I, 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 I don't... And, and again, I don't call work as a burden. I don't see work as a burden. I see work as a blessing. So for me, it's not work like it's a bad thing. Work for me is a good thing. So yes, I'm the director of African Muslim Agency. Yes, I fulfill that role. Uh, yes, I'm a mentor to many, many people. Yes, I speak uh, locally, internationally on, 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 on business lead, in leadership. Yes, I'm an entrepreneur. I develop businesses. I, I, uh, I work with teams of, of, of entrepreneurs as well and develop teams of entrepreneurs as well. Uh, I'm, I'm a dad. I take that very, very seriously. I allocate specific time for that. Um, I'm a traveler. I love traveling. I love learning. I spend time learning. So on an average day, I'm up at five. It's five or six in the morning. Uh, and I go to bed at about midnight or one. If I go to bed at midnight, it's early. It's like if I go to bed at 1130, I'm like, man, so it's like... midnight and you're up at five. Yeah, that's kind of... I reckon... I think if I get five hours, I'm good. Okay. Now, I know it's not the healthiest way of looking at it, but I, I'm fine. Yeah, so what's, what's your definition of success? Significance. I feel like whatever you're going to do in life, you've got to feel significant. If you don't feel significant, because if success is money, I've tried that. Am I saying money is not important? No, no, it's, it's actually very important. I often say to young people, money is really important. It's okay to make a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with it. So, but if that was the only definition of success, um, it's empty. If, uh, if I say, okay, my kids represent success to me. Oh, really? I love my kids and everything. Yeah, but... Hey, they have their own purpose in life. And sometimes they may disagree with me, actually. Sometimes, mostly. You see, here's the thing about it. I know that my kids, like my daughters, for example, are already... One is 21, one is 18. 
my son is 14. And they have their own views of life. And they're going to know that I'm a human being. I remember the day I realized my father wasn't perfect. See, when you're young, you think your parents are, they, they, they know everything. Then you get to a point where you realize you don't like some of the stuff they know. And then as an adult, I disagreed with him on some things. And I realized that I had a decision to make. Either because him and I have different views about a particular situation, does it mean I must stop respecting him? Or did I have to learn now that he's a human being? He might, some decisions he made, I didn't agree with. I thought he made a mistake. But the good news of that was proving to me that he's a human being. He is allowed to make a mistake. So later on, when I make a mistake and my daughters have seen me make a mistake, or my son sees they must say, okay, this is normal. They'll realize I'm not perfect. So even if I say my kids are success, okay, it's one area of life. But there'll be a day they'll disagree with me, maybe very strongly. So success, I believe, my personal view is that whatever you're doing, you've got to feel significant. For me, I've got to feel significant. Mm. So you're talking about the kids, 14, 18, and 21. Yeah. So when you think of today's today's youth, what concerns you? Uh, you know, when I think about what concerns me about youth, if I'm talking about youth and I talk about youth between the two ages of 13 and 19, if I can count teenagers as youth, let's put it that way first. Because there's two categories, maybe there's that, and then there's 20s. Between 20 and 30, I would consider still youth. Uh, 13 to 19, I'd consider the concept of, I think, what scares me is not what scares me about them. It scares me what they're exposed to. That scares me. And I watch some parents and it makes me nervous just because the example we set for, for the kids. Because no matter what we tell our kids, they will ultimately carry the burdens of their parents. And I learned that in my 20s, as a mentor of mine said to me, Emron, we're going to ca- you're going to carry the burdens of your parents. Now, here's, what does it mean? It means that I'll have some good qualities of my dad that I've inherited or watched or saw and just somehow inculcated in my life. But I'll also have some of his bad qualities. Not because he was a bad human being, but because he was normal. He's a human being. So he, made, he did, some things were amazing, some things were not. And I would inherit it. Until I learned to discern and say, this I'm going to take from him was good. And these things he did, I disagree with it. And it wasn't good. I'm going to try to leave it. Does it mean I don't love it? No. Does it mean I don't respect it? No. It's going to do with that. It just means discern. Some people follow their parents no matter what. Because my father, my mother said I must do it. My mother always did it like that. My father always did it like that. Well, your father may have been wrong. So my concern is that sometimes as parents, we tell our kids one thing, but we do another thing. And they will always ultimately carry the burdens of their parents. And I'm concerned about what kind of a burden are we leaving for them to carry as teenagers. When I'm looking at 20s to 30s, and I call that youth, they am concerned about the lack of discernment, of the ability to discern between what's true and what's not true, what's fact, what's not fact. Because there's so much available to us today. You know, when I was growing up, if I was in my room, in my father's house, he knew I was safe. Today, my daughter can be in her room, in my house, she can be sitting in front of me in the lounge and she could be lost yeah. because of the devices we have. And I don't believe that you should stop your kids from the internet and all that kind of stuff. No, you can't. It's a tool. But you've got to teach them. It's like telling your child you're never going to drive a car because you could meet up an accident. Yeah. yeah, of course you could. But you teach them how to be responsible with a car. So, the internet exists today. Never use it because you could get you can meet up an accident on the internet. Of course you could. But rather let me teach you how to use it responsibly. 
Sure. So my concern is that the lack of discernment, meaning there's so much available and we believe too quickly. So the, the youth take everything like, well, I saw it on the internet mm. or so-and-so did it. And we portray a world that's not exactly true. You have a question? Uh, actually, just firstly a message okay. from someone that says, um, typically inspirational. I watch all of your motivational speeches on Instagram. <laughs> um, and then there was someone that just wanted clarification on the topic. Or what is that? Just to say that um, we're interviewing Imran yeah, Junada yeah. and yeah. he's the national director of um, African Muslims Agency. Yes. Yeah. So let's go to let's let's speak yeah. about African sure. Agency. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, you know, African Muslims Agency is an organization that started uh, in uh, 1987 already. Um, so you're looking at over 30 years now, 32 yeah. years this year, yeah. right? Now, AMA started, it was started by a guy called Dr. Abdurrahman Sumait, and um, he moved from Kuwait into Africa and saw what was going on uh, with poverty and stuff. And, uh, and he was a Muslim guy, so he called it African Muslims Agency. That's how they came along. And then my dad at that time, my dad was always involved in community work. Uh, from He was through MSAs and then he was through always community work. And uh, always helping other people. And back in the days of apartheid, he would go into Soweto when, there was, when you weren't allowed to go into Soweto and go there and teach. And he would take me with and we'd go to people's homes and teach and stuff like that. So anyway, so Dr. Abdurrahman Sumait found out through some people about my dad and what he was doing. And so he asked him to start African Agency in South Africa. And this was in 87. So uh, he started it back then. My dad was the director for 25 years, uh, pretty much, uh, when he passed away. And, uh, and I, I was around that environment my entire life, obviously. My entire childhood grew up around it, you know, watched my dad, what he did in, when he went to Somalia and when he did to the parts of Africa. My dad would come home and he wouldn't let us have a table. We'd eat on the floor in the beginning because he'd say, well, in Africa, they don't have a table. So people eat on the floor, so we can eat on the floor. It was just, I never had a bed until I got married. Like, I, I literally slept on this mattress on the floor. Because uh, in my dad's mind, we were, you know, it's good enough. And, uh, and a bed's not that expensive, frankly. But, <laughs> just, wow, yeah. but the point of the matter was, so that was his kind of personality. So this gentleman asked him to, to start a Muslim agency. And I grew up around this environment. That's kind of how I grew up. But I, I watched how uh, communities treated other community leaders. And that, that, that appalled me, frankly. Because it was always a very judgmental society coming into a perspective of, yeah, you know, the, anything they did. Like my dad couldn't buy a new car because he bought a new car. Somebody would say, oh, you know, because you run this charitable organization, it must be. And it annoyed me. And so I, made, I decided I would not do that. I would not. And I went to the world of business. And I developed businesses for whatever, 20 years or 18 years or before that happened. And, then, uh, and at that time, when my dad passed away, the board at African Muslim Agency at that time, uh, I had been with them in, in, in Kuwait a few months prior, and they sat me down and they said, you know what, listen, we know you, you're actually saying you'd have no, you don't want to do this. But uh, this is before he passed away, frankly. I mean, Allah plans the way he plans incredibly. I mean, I would never have been able to plan this. And uh, they said to me, look, we would like you to be able to just, 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 okay, just do a little bit. Just help out a little bit. We just want you to, we want you bring a different mindset to it. And I thought, I, mean, I didn't know my father was going to pass away a few months later. So I figured, yeah, I'll advise my father. <laughs> That's kind of what I'll do, you know. From a business perspective, I'll, show you, I'll give him some new ideas. That's what they were asking. And literally four months later, he passed away. 
And when he passed away, they called me the next morning and they said, listen, we want you to, uh, to head it up and bring a fresh perspective to it. And, uh, but, you know, frankly, to be honest, I mean, we walk on the shoulders of giants. That's the fact. There is no way I would have been the sac- be able to sacrifice what he sacrificed for 25 years. There's just no way I'd be able to do what he did. So whatever AMA does today is not because of me or any one particular staff member. It's first of all because of all the people that went before us, number one. And number two, it's because of lots of people put together. So that's kind of how AMA kind of, kind of started. <clears throat> so when they called you in that morning, mm. did you say yes immediately? Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> I have no idea why. I said, sure. And I didn't know. Again, it's, you know, when I think about how a creator plans these things, I have no idea. Today, it's the best. I mean, I love it. I absolutely have a passion for it. Uh, I love it because there's two aspects to what I do in my businesses and in leadership and mentorship and in entrepreneurship. I can teach people how to build businesses. I can teach them how to lead organizations of people. And I can do that kind of thing. And it excites me because they can make a difference in their life. But on the other hand, there's a group of people in this world who are there to benefit us. What I mean by that, who, who are what we call the poor people of the world. Now, we say poor people. Why I say benefit us is because, you know, our creator could have given them, could have given us nothing and given them everything, so to speak, materially, if you want to call it that. We call it, we tell it as poor people. But wait a second. They're doing us a favor by allowing us to serve them. So that brings a whole different dimension to life. It humbles you in a massive way. You know, there's so many stories of me in, in Mozambique, in villages, in Malawi, in villages, in Lebanon, in uh, refugee camps uh, there, and all our staff. I mean, we sent a ladies' delegation that arrived back this morning. They were in Lebanon for the past eight days. A whole bunch of women who went there to refugee camps in Lebanon. And this is their second trip. They were there last year as well. Tell us about the most memorable moment working with African Muslims. Um, one of the most. One of the most. You know, because there's so many. If I can just give you one perspective on this, is that uh, I was in um, in Malawi. We do a lot of water wells and boreholes. This, this, this is what the organization does. And when I say we have to put all the staff put together, obviously everybody. And uh, so obviously when I go to these places, they try to show me all the stuff that they've done because now they have to tick off and show me on the director. So that we drive around and they'll say, okay, you know, this and this and I could inspect these things and make sure things are done. So um, we go to this. Now in Malawi, there was no electricity in one area, in this one village and we arrive at this village and it's almost uh, sunset time, almost, almost Maghreb time. And we stopped the 404 and so the guys are telling me now, okay, now in the book here, we can show you, okay, now next week we come to drill a borehole in this village. I said, oh, okay, that's wonderful. So it's on the list. Next week, it's going to happen. So they start talking to the local people in Chichewa and they start saying, that, look, next week, we're going to send the drilling machine here to this village to drill a ball. And they say, okay, okay, you have to wait here. We're going to go and fetch this old lady. You have to wait. We're going to fetch her. So anyway, we wait for a few minutes. So we see this guy get on his bicycle. He's going to go to another village. Oh, he's gone 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's a long time. Huh? And, you know, we get impatient. We come from what we call civilization, so to speak. I'm not sure if we really are. But anyway, we come and everything has to happen fast. And I'm waiting. And me and these other guys are waiting. And so uh, this guy's not coming back. He's going to fetch this. I'm thinking, nope, nobody asks how far is this village that he's gone to. How long will it take him? Half an hour waiting. It's starting to get dark now. There's no electricity. So I'm saying to the guy that's with me, one of the sheikhs there, and I'm saying to him, listen, you know what? Okay, I get it. We're waiting for this old woman to come. So I asked, why are we waiting? I asked one of the other people. No, she prayed last week. She made dua last week that Allah must send water to this village. So we want her to come and realize that her prayer was answered. Her dua was answered. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. 
So we wait a little bit longer. Now she's still not coming. I'm saying, okay, I get it. And I'm grateful and all of that. And I also make dua for her, but it's late. <laughs> we could get going. This guy says to me, he says to me, and this is the biggest lesson I learned there. He says to me, well, here's the key to the word for If you want to go, you're welcome to. He says, but I know me. It is a sheikh. He says, I know me. He says, I know all the mistakes I've made in my life. He says, I'm waiting for this woman to come. He says, I'm going to ask her to make dua for me and for everybody who contributed to this ball. He says, because she made, she had no idea, of, no way of knowing that we're going to come today. And it's not our design. Our creator designs that she prayed. There's water coming next week. It's just amazing. So he says, I want her to come and make dua for us here. And then we ended up, and I thought, you're right. I know me. I know the mistakes I've made in my life, man. I'm waiting as well. So we waited until she came. She cried and she just made dua for It's just, for me, it was just an incredible experience, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe another quick one was I was in Lebanon in a refugee camp, a Syrian refugee camp there, and I'm sitting there interviewing this woman with her children. And there's just obviously, as you can imagine, um, so many. And, uh, and this was now earlier last year. And I'm sitting there and uh, interviewing her. And, I, and then it hit me, sitting in that tent, sort of thinking, man, you idiot. Like, what, what the heck are you doing here? You hear she's being polite. You can barely fathom what she's been through. You have no concept. She's not going to share with me really what she's been through. And what she is sharing is already so heart-wrenching to me. And that's not completely because she's just not going to open up to me as much as she would to another woman. And we left that camp and I thought, no, i got to come back to South Africa and send a bunch of women to come here. And so last year, October, we sent a whole bunch of women from Joburg, Durban, and Cape Town there. And then another bunch went now. They just came back there this morning. Right. And just incredible stories that come out of there because of these you know, women interacting with women and children in these refugee camps. It blows your mind what people go through every single day. Is that a question? We have a question, but it's actually taking us back to like, the parenting sure. thing. Yeah, let's do um, So, uh, Yusra actually, she, said, she asked, where is the line between respecting or taking parents' opinion into account um, versus youth venturing out and formulate their own opinions or making decisions they think they should make at any given point? That's a really good question, difficult to answer, obviously, quickly. But let me give you my perspective and maybe, maybe, maybe... Uh, you'll be able to get some yeah, maybe you'll be able to get some perspectives on maybe from my, my perspective right but I can't give an answer to that because every situation is different if I was specifically mentoring somebody and I knew the whole background of everything we'd be able to talk further but I talked about my dad and the way my dad brought me up the day my daughter was born my oldest daughter's 21 the day she was born I said I will never ever lift my hand on my kids I will never swear them I just will not do it. Because in my mind, it was like this. Now, I know many parents have done it. I'm not saying you're bad or wrong. I'm just saying if you have done it, stop. Like, it's not. It's, when is it normal? Now, I'm not saying you personally. I'm painting a point here. When is it normal for one human being? Husband, wife, father, mother. Doesn't matter. Uh, doesn't matter what configuration you want to call it, right? Friends. When is it right for one human being to physically connect with another human being, to inflict pain on another human being, to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And the reason I say that is because if I did that to a child, they'll accept my, they'll learn through my example that they have no say. To avoid pain, they will follow in my presence 
what I want. When I'm not there, they will do what they want to do. Because that's their chance, when they think I can't see them. So it's never okay for one human being to hit another human being, for whatever reason. I, I just don't, I don't, does, to me, it's, it's irrelevant. To show that I'm right, or whatever the case is, right? Or to swear at someone, that vulgarity. So I paint that picture to say this, that ultimately everything is based on, everything is a package. Mentor of mine you know, often talked about this, everyone is a package. Everything is a package. Every situation is a package. It's never individual. So I can't give an answer on one particular decision, but I can say how you parent as a whole will determine that. Am I nervous that my daughter, my daughter, you know, since she got a license, she's got her own car, she can drive, whatever the case she, she did. I trust her 100%. My second daughter is 18 now. I trust her completely. Now, did we have issues? Yeah. When, they was, when the one was 16, there was a bit of an issue. I needed to remove her phone for a few months, whatever the case is. And we did remove her phone for a few months. There were some rules. You see, this is what I feel like. If you sit down with kids, kids are not stupid, they're actually very bright. If you sit them down and explain some boundaries and say, look, these are the rules. Like with my son right now, he's got a phone for the first time, he's 14 years old. For the first time in his life, he's got a phone. But he knows there's rules. So for example, I'm very open with it. I don't have to scream and shout. We'll say simply like this here, you're not allowed to have a password on your phone. If you are, okay, I must know it. You come home, you put it in the public place. If your phone rings, pick it up and answer it. If somebody sends a message to reply, no problems. However, if I ever find that you find the need to take it into your room or something, that means there's something there you don't want me to see. And you know what's funny? He knows I trust him with the phone. Because it's there. He knows I have the right to pick it up at any time. It belongs to me. I think where parents go wrong is they'll give something to a child or they'll give them certain things and they make it like, it belongs to you and I have no right to it or whatever the case. No, no, no. You as the parent always know better when they're a certain age. Does it mean you have to enforce it? No. It means allow them to figure out that you were right. And it may take them a while to figure it out. The pain as a parent is to shut up. Like my daughters are very strong girls. And I want them to be strong women. Strong, respectful, independent women. I want them to be. So they know. So sometimes if someone hears my daughter speak to me, sometimes they may think they've been disrespectful. Because they do speak to me and they're very open about their views and opinions. And I allow it. But over the years they've learned that there's a particular line. And if they get close to that line or they cross that line, then I'll say, sweetie, that's not appropriate. Or I'm not going to accept that kind of discussion. Or that tone of voice I won't accept. I don't have to scream at them. I just have to say, I'm sorry. That tone of voice I'm not going to accept. And then they're like, okay, they crossed the line. Let's go back to behind the line again. When is it okay to take, when, when do you take your parents' advice and when do you let the child do their own thing? Whew, that's a tough one. It depends on age, it depends on maturity, it depends on how you brought them up, it depends on how you're parenting. But can I just say one thing in, in closing on that question is this. If your intention every single day is to live the best you you can be, you're doing the right thing. Why? Because your child will follow your example. I see so many parents and we try to teach us all the time. So many parents, you tell their children, you must do something great with your life, eh? Stop watching TV, go study. Stop watching TV, go make salah. Stop watching TV, stop on the phone, stop this. But they look at you and all you do is couch around, lounge around, bum around in front of the TV, sit with your, tele your, your cell phone the whole day. You're not doing anything great with your life. What do you think they're going to do? They're not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. So the line you want to remember is if you want your children to do something great with their lives, 
do something great with your life. If you follow your goals, I want my kids to see that I'm driven, that I wake up, I'm focused, I'm high energy, because I want them to know. They may not realize it now, but later on in life, they'll realize, oh, that was a great example, I hope, anyway. And of course, I will create the best yeah. in my whole So life. I just want to give you a standing ovation here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, no more questions there. No. So, and I want to respect your time as well, so you, you know, we can sit here for hours. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Shit. Uh, we got something called the lightning round. Ask him yeah. And um, <laughs> basically, you complete the sentence. Okay. okay. So, Allah is merciful. Love is unconditional. The world needs leadership. Happiness is within yourself. Being a Muslim to me means peace. Leadership is influence. So, I just want to go back to the Qur'an. You mentioned Qur'an earlier. It's a difficult question, but do you have your sort of a favorite or most profound story or ayah? Growing up as well, again, my father uh, encouraged me to become a half of the Qur'an, to memorize Qur'an. And, uh, you know, when you're young and you're a teenager, it's, and you struggle with it, uh, you fight it. You don't, you don't know the value of it later on. Today, it's probably the, the thing I'm most proud of in my life is that I did finish it. And that for me is the most. No matter what goes on in the world, what goes on in my head, how overwhelmed I might be, whatever difficulty I might be going through, when I sit and recite it, it's incredibly peaceful. Now, there's a particular verse in Surah Al-Talaq, which is the, the chapter on divorce. And uh, there's a part of a verse there where Allah, our Creator, is explaining how to divorce fairly and justly and kindly. Uh, and there's words in there that He talks about kindness. And uh, that was important to me. I'm divorced now almost five years, uh, very amicably, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, alhamdulillah, I'm grateful, actually. Uh, my ex-wife's a wonderful woman, brilliant mother. Uh, and I would say that to the day I die, pretty much. Um, because again, it's a creation of Allah. It's a creation of our Creator. So when someone speaks badly of another person, we've got to catch ourselves and remind ourselves that we're speaking badly of another creation of our Creator. We didn't create that person. And that person was not created badly. They were created in perfection in our Creator's uh, wisdom. Anyway, so through that process, I really had to dig deep. And I was actually going to different people for advice. And some of this mentors of mine, uh, some of these older people, for example, that were talking about the mentor my dad, said to me, listen, Imran, you memorize Quran. You want to know how to do this properly. Because everything that's allowed in our faith, there must be a merciful way to do it. I don't believe that anything would be allowed by our Creator to harm another person. There's no such thing. Whatever in our faith is allowed, permissible to do, there must be a constructive way to do it, not destructive. If something destroys another person, it's because we misinterpret how to do it and we then destroy another person. That's the only time it's destructive. It's not designed to be destructive. There must be a, so I said, okay, there must be a right way to do this, or a fair way at least anyway. And so he said to me, you memorize Quran, go to Quran and, go, and find the advice. And anyway, there's this verse on Haru how to go through this process of kindness. But part of that verse goes like this in the Arabic uh, context of this. First of all, our Creator talks about leaving somebody with kindness. 
And then goes on to say, And for those of you who have taqwa, God consciousness, be aware of God, be aware of a higher being. So God consciousness, meaning now you know that you're not the be all and end all, there's a higher being. Makhraj is like exit. So he'll, he'll, he'll make a way out for you. If you are, for those of you who have consciousness, he'll make a way out for you. And most Muslims will know the rizq concept of uh, sustenance, of giving you, whether you want to call it wealth, whether you call it sustenance in other ways. He'll give you sustenance from places you never imagined. Now, and he goes on to say, put your faith completely in your Creator because He is enough for you. So, now, why that's so, so profound to me, and I, I just think it's incredible, is that if the Creator of the worlds, of everybody, says that if you conscious of me, I will give you sustenance from places you never imagined. That means from places you never imagined. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't mean you can imagine it. It means beyond your human imagination, you will be sustained. You will be taken care of. You'll be okay. You'll be safe. But what's your responsibility? Is God consciousness. To be aware. And some people translate as God-fearing. I, I just don't subscribe to the context of fear. I'd rather say conscious, being aware of something. Like if I see, if there's a dog that walks in here that seems a bit wild, I don't have to be fearful, but I have to be aware. Like, okay, this potentially could be dangerous or could potentially could be whatever. I'm aware. But prior to that, our Creator talks about kindness, how to separate with kindness. And I always figure this. If you are unkind to another human being, especially an ex-spouse, because I was going through that at that time, you're picking a fight with the Creator you can't win. Why would you be that dumb? Why would you pick a fight that you know you're not going to win? So, rather be kind. Rather be generous. Rather be merciful. Because, because if you are conscious of your Creator, He'll open up a way for you. That He will provide sustenance from you from places you never imagined. And that means beyond your physical imagination. That's a counter question to the youth one. Yeah. When you think of today's youth, what excites you? Ah, oh, they love change. They embrace it. They love learning. They know they have to learn. The thing that annoys me about the older guys is that they stop learning and they don't see the value in learning. They say, oh, all this new stuff, you know, I don't like all these new things. Wait a second. The only reason you're going to be fearful about your career or about the future of your children is if you have stopped learning. If you've stopped learning, be scared. Why? Because your children will be in a world that you don't understand. And that's dangerous. In this world, your children need you. Not only your children. Society needs you to be learning. Because if the elders who have the wisdom of life, if you're older and you believe you've got something to impart to the young, then keep yourself abreast by learning. You don't have to know everything that's going on, but learn. Why learn? Because you'll be able to communicate better. If you can communicate better, you can share what you know. So we want you to be learning. The minute you stop learning, these kids, the young, what I love about them is that with AI coming and you're already and 
what's going on with every industry being disrupted. What I love about it is that I know my daughter who's at university at the moment is Tata Bosch. I know that by the time she qualifies on a degree, it's pointless. So then you can ask me whether why is she doing it? She's doing it because she's falling in love with the process of learning. When she's finished, whether she practices that or not is irrelevant to me. What's relevant to me is young people love learning. If they fall in love with the process of learning new things, they'll always be okay. Because whatever comes their way, and they are they fortunately born in a world where things change so fast, which means they have to learn. Otherwise, they get left behind. We and people older than us were born in a world where things change slowly. So you could get complacent for a while. You could coast for a while and still be okay. Nowadays, I read somewhere recently, the average attention span of someone who's age 18 to 25 at the moment is about seven seconds because of social media and stuff. Things move so quickly. That's good and it's bad. But I think I'm excited about their ability to adapt. They're quick. They're smart. They want to learn. They're aware. They're much more value-driven. Now, you may, we may disagree because some people, well, my kids are only interested in it. I get it. But trust me, if you just listen to your children, they're much more value-driven than we were. Kids nowadays will be fighting for the environment. They're fighting for what's right. They're fighting for justice and peace. They're challenging us to say, wait a second, you guys are messing it up. And that's what excites me. I sit on this uh, international um, conference once every two years called the World Innovation Summit for Education. And I absolutely love it. It's about, you know, 3,000 global thinkers on education come together and discuss the future of education. It fires me up because there's a lot of young people there as well, 18, 19, 20, 25, 26, 30, whatever the case is. And they can sit there and they can challenge a professor who's 60 years old. Because remember, and maybe we can wrap this up, but remember, when I was at university, if the lecturer came in and said page 350, now first of all, the book was written 15 years prior to getting to university. So the book 15 years dated already. I get there, I read page 300 and something, and he was the be-all and end-all of knowledge. That was it. I couldn't question what was in the book, which was 15 years old already. And question, I couldn't question him. Today, if a student wants to learn, if I'm the lecturer, man, I'm not the be-all and end-all of knowledge anymore. When I rock up to class in the morning, that student sitting in front of me may know more than me about the subject than I know. Why? Because that student may be researching, if they're excited about it, they're researching the world. They're finding out now they might be misinformed in some ways, but they know a lot more information about the subject than I might know because I might not have had a chance to do all of that research. Sure. Which means I'm no longer the be-all and end-all of knowledge. So the older people are no longer the be-all and end-all of knowledge and information and wisdom. It's so freely available to young people. So what are we then as older people? We're merely guides. We're merely coaches and mentors. We're merely helping young people discern from what's fact, what's not. How to see what's fact and what's not. So we don't want to tell young people what to think. I don't want to tell my children what to think. I'd rather teach them how to think. So they think for themselves. There is one gift my father always gave me was he said, question things. Think for yourself. He used to say to me clearly, and I know this sounds almost uh, bad, but I don't mean it in the way it's going to sound. He used to say, even if a learned person comes to you and says, this is what you must do. He said, if you don't understand why, question, ask. Ask why. Because when you understand it, you'll be more willing to do it. When you don't understand it, and you just as a learner person will tell me, you must do this or else. I'll do it for a little while, but I won't internalize it. But also Islamic value to yeah, ask why. Absolutely. 
What is Imran Chunara most grateful for? My thinking. And I think, and I say my thinking just because that wasn't something that, that is not something you can take credit for. I can't take credit for it. When, 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 when our creator puts something in you, the ability to do something or to discern something, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift. If I give you a gift, you can't take credit for it because you didn't earn it. You were gifted it. So something for me is my ability to discern was a gift from my creator. So I can't take credit for it because I didn't earn it. So, but I have a responsibility to look after it. Because mm-hmm. if I give you a gift and you just throw it, or just throw it aside, man, then you're ungrateful for the gift I gave you. So if I give you a gift, you didn't earn it. So you can't say it was yours. I gave it to you. If I didn't give it to you, you wouldn't have had it. But now you do have a responsibility if you want to protect the gift, if you value the gift, to look after it. Which means my creator could gift me something, but could take it away easily. If I throw it by the wayside, it might take away my ability to think clearly or to discern. And if he takes that away from me, and he could take it away just like that, because I don't own it. I don't own it. I didn't, I didn't earn it. Because he gifted it, he can remove it if there's ingratitude. And that's one of my biggest fears. Is that if my creator decides one day, you're not worthy of that anymore. Because it can be removed just like that. What if today is your last day? This is my last question. Yeah. Today's your last day. Um, you only have enough energy to say a few words. Give us your best 30 second speech. Never stop growing. Never, ever stop growing. And don't, uh, for me, to the day I die, I pray that till the moment I take my last breath, I'm trying to challenge myself to be personally excellent in some way. Does it mean I'm always, no, man, I, if you knew me like I knew me, you probably won't respect me. Frankly. Because you know every thought I've ever had in my life, every mistake I've ever made, everything I'm embarrassed about, whatever. But let's be honest, if I knew you like you knew you, I probably won't respect you either. Because I would know everything about you. But thankfully, our Creator mercifully covers our weakness so we can respect each other and deal with each other dignity. So my final words would be, never stop growing. Because why would you? The minute you stop growing, it means you're now done. Okay, but you don't know how long you have left to live, but you're done. Uh, so now you're waiting to die? I mean, that just sounds illogical, isn't it? So I never stop growing with my final words. Right, you can so much for... You know more questions? Yeah. Dinesh, you can so much for being part of the accident. Oh, no, it's an family. absolute pleasure. Shukran for Shalom, having me. Shalom, you're going part two, part three. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we wish you all the best with your businesses. Excellent, with, uh, thank you. With the African Muslim Agency, with your coaching yeah, and speaking. Absolutely. And yeah, shukran. May Allah shukran. bless you guys. What you guys are doing is incredible. I really, you know, all the stuff you're doing around the country... And I pray that it goes international and you guys do some amazing work, inshallah, because I think what you guys are doing is really needed. And the platforms you're using, I think, is amazing because you're appealing to a variety of people from every possible background, uh, which is incredible. So, yeah. Thank you. God bless you guys. So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests is inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. 
So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.